This is podcast number 228, entitled Eternal Return. And the music you've just heard is by the Tramps. That is where the happy people go. One of the, in my view, really wonderful tracks. I think it was... uh, mixed and arranged by Tom Moulton in Philadelphia by the Tramps in the early 70s and is pure joy. And the reference to the title of um, Mircea Eliad's um, belief that uh, there were certain religious views um, in the world that... uh, declared that we were in a constant return, that the world was either a gyre or was a gigantic circle. The world is a circle and nobody knows where it begins and where it ends. That's, um, what's her name from, uh, I want to say Uma Thurman, but it's the other person uh, from Sweden in the remake of uh, Lost Horizon from 1973. But I just want you to um, be thinking about an eternal return, which I want to talk to you about because it concerns something that is on everybody's mind today, and that is the tremendous um, emotional division that is affecting almost all of our personal relationships that is connected with the election of the new president and the backlash that it was and the backlash against it, which is very, very significant. And as two clergymen, one here in Orlando and another in Charlottesville, have recently said in almost the same terms that the question underlies almost every pastoral conversation these good clergy have. Did you or didn't you? Are you or are you not? Every relationship is, did you vote for? Did you vote against? Uh, Are you one of them? Are you one of us? Uh, Whatever that may be, please don't let me think you're one of them. And the tremendous value judgment that is placed on a political uh, opinion one way or t'other, and the uh, fact of that, which has even provided some very strong negative Uh, responses to some things that I've done trying to be quiet, but you just can't be because everybody has their receptors so highly tuned. It's like a, uh, you know, a hurricane, uh, a barometer that's been so sensitively tuned that it picks up the least change in air pressure. Well, uh, the um, question is, how can we understand this degree of apocalyptic division that's occurring? And I'm not here to talk you out of it. I'm not here to condemn it one way or the other, right or left. And I'm not here to sort of say, oh, if we would, you know, suck it up or just get over it, or we've just got to be more statesmanlike, because those are all forms of control and law and their action consequence thinking. But what I can do is give some perspective that is very personal, that relates directly to something that I experienced almost identical with the current mood that now has taken on a different kind of a life. And I wonder whether this could be a valuable uh, help or resource to you as you try to navigate these very uncertain waters. Because in some places, I find myself being feeling almost shunned uh, in certain very relationships that I value. In fact, many years, I almost feel like I'm a pariah. And yet, some of that's in my own mind. And I am also capable of doing the same to another. And this is not good. This is a sense of 
you know, I'm feeling like I'm in, uh, you know, uh, Silas Marner. That, that is a, not a, a good thing for any of us, wherever we may be. But my way of looking at this is not to talk you or me out of views that we have that are sensitive and that are sincere. My view is rather to look at it in light of something that happened 47 years ago. And this is not just Paul talking about Paul. It is a, a, an insight that occurred almost instantly as I was thinking about it the other day. Um, there was a foot in the spring of 1970 as a result of the Kent State catastrophe and the, wasn't it the um, invasion of Cambodia? Or the, I always forget exactly what it was, but everything suddenly flipped overnight into hyperdrive on uh, the campuses all across this country and what had been a very long, serious, active uh, descent turned into a national tinderbox overnight in which everyone was forced absolutely forced to take sides, especially if you were young. And um, I was there and I was thinking, you know, it's it, this is the, the, when I think of what's happening now, I go back instantaneously, but it took me a little while to get to that point when I realized that that's what I was actually thinking, to the events that I was myself part of and Mary and anyone who lived at that time on a college campus of the spring of 1970, because at that time, the, the strike happened, uh, classes were canceled, any uh, more traditional, not conservative, more traditional professors or uh, teaching fellows, mainly professors who would give classes during those two, three weeks or months, would, would almost be dragged off their platforms. It was a violent sense that you must actively stop everything to protest this terrible thing in this country. And it's an absolute um, mandate and an injunction and an imperative. And anyone who might question it or try to have business as usual was seen as the utter enemy. And the place was polarized 100 um, percent. We stood in uh, lines watching these protests. We listened to people speak with tremendous vociferousness of power and urgency and great passion about what the United States government was doing and what our role must be. And the, and the revolutionary talk was everywhere. And, uh, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't even get to class during the day. I had to do my, some of my classes. I ended up going to do tutorials at professors' houses in the burbs, as it were, of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I would leave and uh, would, couldn't return books during the day because there were roadblocks everywhere, and I had too many books, and I returned them very late, once at two o'clock in the morning, thinking to avoid the roadblocks, and I got arrested by uh, campus security in Chapel Hill in 1970, because they thought, you know, the guy stopped me in the car and said, I smell gas. I smell gas. Where's the gas coming from? He thought that I must have a uh, kind of was bringing some gas to gasoline to pour on something and start a fire on the campus, burn down a building. And it was actually, I just had a quote, shitty, end of quote, car. (laughs) That's where the gas was from. I just had a lot of books in the back. Well, actually, officer, it's two o'clock in the morning and I was returning uh, theology books. Well, that really flew. But all I'm trying to say, can you believe that's what it was like? It was that bad. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't meet anybody. You were, you were all focused on this stuff. You, you couldn't help it. And um, uh, then I took a brief trip up to Cambridge to work out a college admissions there. And uh, they just had a riot on Massachusetts Avenue outside the Harvard Yard with people blaring street fighting man by the Rolling Stones from their stereos outside the windows of the various different uh, dorms on Mass Avenue, the freshman dorms. I mean, the whole thing really, and it had gotten quite violent. People had actually been hurt, you know, uh, and uh, it was really a rough time. And yet... And yet, looking back on it now, it seems forgettable and unimportant 
Why do I say that? Am I diminishing this, the importance of, of free demonstrations against a government that you feel is being uh, run by authoritarian fascists? Those were the words that were used. Well, actually, no. I'm not saying that. At the time, I was entirely concerned by a romantic, shall we say, development in my life, a negative development. I was totally, actually involved in uh, reacting to, responding to, feeling a, 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 a romantic situation that for me was of the highest power of intensity and hurt and pain and suffering. And that's what, in fact, was engrossing me. Now, you may say, well, how could you be so trivial as to be involved in that when uh, America's foreign policy was at stake? And I would say, well, you know, I, I, that sounds right. But looking back on it now, 47 years later, I can barely remember about the demonstrations. Yes, a little bit. I have pictures in my yearbook of them. I can barely remember them. But I've never forgotten the, uh, the pain and the, uh, the sorrows uh, of Vertar that were afflicting me. That, in fact... I've never forgotten. And I have a friend who was also involved. Uh, I knew very well at the time on the spot there. And I believe he would say something like the same thing, that what really is uh, embranded on his memory is certain, you know, we were the Blues Brothers. Uh, and that is uh, something that you find you're a little surprised. Now, I have people in my college class, uh, my Harvard college class, who uh, in the listserv in the college are very excited by the times in which we live now because they feel they evoke the spirit of the spring of 1970, which is very powerful and to them was the greatest time in their lives. And I sometimes want to say to them, I, I, I don't want to disagree with their feeling about that, but I want to say, did, didn't you, did you ever have a date? I mean, is that all you were thinking about? Was that displaced? <clears throat> I mean, did, did you have a girlfriend? <clears throat> well, the answer actually was usually not. It was kind of displaced, a lot of displaced feeling. But what was involved in my mind that what was going on on the campus was secondary, important and interesting and certainly inconveniencing. And I didn't agree with it in any event, but I didn't fight anything. I was just other things are more important. That's my point. It was, looking back on it now, and is forgettable and unimportant. And I wonder how today's uh, enormous uh, issues are going to be regarded by you in 47 years. Um, if you're still here, you know, that's 27 years. Um, that's why I say eternal return. The very same kinds of urgencies, the same kind of divisions, the family split in two. See that movie Model Shop, the Jacques Demy 1968 or is it 69 movie that's made with Gary Lockwood in L.A., a wonderful movie in which the father and the son are completely, totally alienated over the question of the draft and whether there's conscientious objection and the draft card. And one is sort of, you know, a conservative, quote, John Bircher sounding type of guy. And the, the son is, of course, where we all were, or we thought we were. And I wasn't, but I was sort of, you know, we were, we were and we weren't. And um, it, it, it feels, the, the families were split apart. I mean, right in my own immediate family, uh, people were, Mary's family, the families were very strained because young people took one view. And parents had not encountered this before and often took a very strongly, uh, strong another view. This was new. And the urgency, you know, it was Buffalo Springfield. The funny thing is all the songs that came out then were not, in fact, about social issues. We were all thinking about girls and uh, or dates or whatever it was. And the girls were actually usually thinking about that, too. The um, uh, Stephen King makes such a wonderful point when he says, you know, people think that P Vietnamese, the American soldiers in Vietnam were listening to Purple Haze all the time or the the doors, you know, and in fact, they weren't. 
they were listening to Merrily Rush, Angel of the Morning. Uh, and that would, even if we listened to The Doors, it was, hello, I love you, let me go, no name, uh, you know, or Baby Light My Fire. I mean, is that a social gospel song? No, that's not how we saw it. Yes, Purple Haze, maybe, okay, and a little bit of Janis Joplin, but most of Janis Joplin is down on me, down on me, you know, roadblock, roadblock. What a great song. Unbelievable. Now, that's where I want to just say, what are you really thinking about? Are you actually totally, completely, magnificently captured by a great Meryl Streep desire to do something, to make a great change, and to respond and lash back at this awful development? Or on the other hand, are you sort of trying to defend a change that you felt was needed for a long, long time because people couldn't say what they think. And they really couldn't, by the way. About 50% of the country was unable to put into words or to put into public words or overheard words what they might have been thinking. And that's still true to some extent. So, uh, you know, either way, if you're left or you're right, there's a tremendous sense of urgency here. You know, the whole world depends on it. Don't you see this is 1938 Germany? Well, if that's how you see it. But I'm not trying to, to deny your feelings at all. I'm simply trying to say, are they actually where you really are? Or are you really thinking more about professional advancement or, you know, you haven't had sex with your wife forever because these children are so darn engrossing, you can't do anything. And she's lost her appetite for that anyway, because she's so tired all the time. And what would you do if you were her? Would you be interested in dot, dot, dot when, when all you can do, you can barely get out of bed in the morning to do all the different things you're trying to do, let alone make a living. And uh, who are you to say, you know, you're, you're cockeyed about the whole thing yourself. Now, all I'm trying to say is that the thing that you actually may be worrying about may not in fact be the president of the United States or the um, disrupting the administration of that president. That may feel like it's very important and it may in fact seem all important, but ask yourself, is it really the most important thing? The reason I'm concluding today with uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, Too Busy Thinking About My Baby, I remember the song very well when it came out. It was number one for a short period of time, at least on the R&B charts, I think. I remember the song. And he um, he's, uh, he's too busy thinking about his baby to think about anything else at all, whether it's Vietnam or Country Joe and the Fish or um, uh, the, uh, you know, the social progressive issue of the day, all of which is too more important, or trigonometry. You don't know much trigonometry. Don't know much about algebra. What I do know is I love you, and I hope that you will love me. What are we focused on? Just ask yourself that. What are you focused on? And this shocked me when I realized that looking back on an equally passionate time, one that wrote, that was a rivenness between families and friends, that in fact, I was much more interested in whatever was going on with, quote, her or not her or somebody else or him than I was about um, these important issues, even though they felt oh so important. Well, let's listen to Marvin Gaye. And uh, I do, as always, want to say, uh, love you. Uh-huh. 